Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that isn't afraid to tell you that Christopher Columbus would have his own story arc on Criminal Minds if he was around today. Welcome back. Last Monday, we were looking at the Age of Exploration and how that would eventually play into the colonization of the Americas by Europe. Today, we'll continue that by discussing the discovery of America, by Western Europe at least. We talk about this discovery far too much, considering how Western Europeans are actually the last continental area to discover the Americas. Last and best remembered, or something like that, I guess. When talking about the discovery of the New World, Columbus usually tries to suck all of the oxygen out of the room when it comes to the discovery of the Americas. That credit really belongs to Leif Erikson, as far as Europe is concerned, who made it to what's now Newfoundland in Canada about 500 years before Columbus put his genocidal feet on Caribbean soil. There are actually two accounts of Leif's visit to Canada, both from the 13th century. In the saga of Eric the Red, it says that Erikson's ship drifted off course while returning to Greenland from Norway, and he disembarked in what is now Nova Scotia. Another 13th century tale titled The Saga of the Greenlanders says that Erikson learned of the new land from another seaman a decade earlier, and that Erikson sailed there on purpose, landing first in an icy region he named Helluland, believed now to be Baffin Island, and the heavily forested Markland, thought to be Labrador, before eventually making his way to the more hospitable Vinland. Unlike later European colonizing attempts, Leif appears to have had very little interaction with the natives of the area, and what little he had seems to have been friendly, at least more friendly than the interactions his brother Thorvald Eriksson had with the natives when he followed up his brother's expedition a few years later. He spent about two years exploring the coast of Vinland, but eventually hostilities grew between his expedition and the natives, and Thorvald was fatally wounded in a battle and supposedly buried somewhere on the North American coast, though we don't know where. After the Ericsson brothers, there's a lengthy gap in well-known explorations of the Americas, not starting again until the Age of Exploration. Now, I was going to try to speedrun my normal lecture on the general history of some of the most famous early European explorers of the New World, but I very quickly remembered that when I do history content, I am physically incapable of speedrunning anything, because there's always just one more teeny tiny little factoid that I think is super interesting and I have to try to squeeze in, and this is why the number one complaint about my university class is that it's very lecture-heavy, but you are all here of your own free will, so... There are a number of relatively well-known explorers who ventured across the ocean to check out the New World. I could probably fill an entire episode with random facts and stories about various sailors and explorers from this period, but for today, I want to mostly focus on the Spanish colonial exploits. That said, we are going to start with an Italian, because he's the one the continent is named after. That Italian would be Amerigo Vespucci. He was an Italian merchant, explorer, and navigator from Florence. Between 1497 and 1504, Vespucci participated in at least two Atlantic voyages, the first for Spain and the second for Portugal. He would then go on to publish two booklets, or at least they were published under his name, which contained some colorful descriptions of the New World. Like how he thought that the natives lived for 150 years and rarely fell ill, and he also believed that native men let poisonous animals bite their genitals in order to make them, and I quote, swell up to such a huge size that they appear deformed and disgusting. This was apparently to better please their women sexually. I have so many questions. Like, where did he get this idea? Why was he looking at their genitals? Was he jealous? But to be honest, while I say I have a lot of questions, I would actually rather that none of those questions be answered ever, which is a rare thing for me to say. 
Like a lot of explorers at this time, his writing is very much focused as a sort of ethnographic look at the peculiarities of the native tribes he encountered. He was much more respectful than some, clearly having some respect for the tribes and not treating them as less than human in his descriptions. He even wrote that he found the women to be tolerably beautiful, but he was more than a bit preoccupied with their lack of clothing and sexual habits. Both publications, surprise, surprise, were popular and widely read in Europe. And this popularity is how Amerigo's name ended up associated with the entire continent. See, in 1507, a German cartographer named Martin Waldsmuller created a map known as the Universalis Cosmographa, which was the first map to use the name America for a continent. In this case, it was the title given to what is now South America. This was done in Amerigo Vespucci's honor, likely because his books about his travels were so widely read in Europe at the time. Amerigo became America when Waldsmuller Latinized Vespucci's name. The connection between Waldsmuller's map and Amerigo probably didn't hurt sales of the print either, since Amerigo's books were already widely read, which had to be helpful since maps couldn't have been that big a seller, right? I am saying that while explicitly ignoring the three different maps I have framed on my own home office wall right at this moment, one of them being a print of the Waldsmuller map. The Spanish are really the ones who do the bulk of early colonization and exploration of the Americas, especially in South America. There are a number of famous explorers who worked for Spain during this period. We'll start this off by discussing Vasco da Balboa, explorer, governor, and conquistador. He founded the first permanent European settlement on the mainland of America, the settlement of Santa Maria la Antigua del Darion in 1510 in what is now Colombia. He was also the first American explorer to lead an expedition that reached the Pacific Ocean from the New World, which he accomplished by sailing through the Isthmus of Panama in 1513. Ferdinand Magellan was a Portuguese explorer at first, but he would become a subject of the Spanish monarchy in 1518, and it is his 1519 Spanish expedition to the East Indies across the Pacific Ocean to open a maritime trade route which would cement his fame in history. A large part of this was his discovery of the Magellan Strait, an interoceanic passage in southern Chile. His crew would go on to complete the first circumnavigation of the globe, though Magellan himself would die in 1521 before that voyage was completed. Hernán Cortés, of course, was less of a Spanish explorer and more just a conqueror. Cortés was part of the generation of Spanish explorers and conquistadors who began the first phase of major Spanish colonization in the Americas. Cortés executed a very successful strategy of allying with some indigenous people against others. After he overthrew the Aztec Empire, Cortés was awarded the title of the Marquess of the Valley of Oaxaca. In 1541, Cortés returned to Spain, where he would die six years later of natural causes. Cortés perpetuated one of the most destructively violent wars of the, in the Spanish in the New World, but he wasn't always competent at it. In his third letter, Cortés writes this about the siege of Tenochtitlan. Since our powder was running very short, we had spoken over a fortnight before of making a catapult, and although we had no engineers really competent to undertake it, yet some carpenters offered to make a small one. The catapult took some four days to put into position, even after it appeared in the square. Meanwhile, our Indian allies were proclaiming to those in the city in what a marvelous manner we were going to kill them all. Both hopes, however, were doomed to disappointment, for neither did the carpenters succeed in working their engine, nor did the inhabitants, though frightened, make any move towards surrender, so that we were obliged to cover up the failure of the catapult by saying that, moved by compassion, we were unwilling to kill them all. So yes, that meme you've seen about how embarrassing the Spanish trebuchet slash catapult construction was that failed utterly was true. We've got at least three corroborating sources on it from both the Spanish and Mexico side of the war. 
Of course, the Spanish weren't happy to stop with the destruction of the Aztecs. Francisco Pizarro would soon follow up with his conquest of Peru, where he would decimate the Incan Empire. In 1529, about eight years after Cortez's siege, Pizarro obtained permission from the Spanish crown to lead a campaign to conquer Peru. Pizarro captured the Incan emperor Atahualpa at the Battle of Cajamarca in November of 1532. A ransom for the emperor's release was demanded, and the Atahualpa people filled a room with gold. But Pizarro charged him with various crimes and executed him in July of 1533 regardless. The first time we see the reason for don't negotiate with terrorists or pay the ransom being a solid foreign policy decision. The same year, Pizarro entered the Inca capital of Cusco and completed his conquest of Peru. In January of 1535, Pizarro would found the city of Lima. Now, of course, as we've gone through this list, you may have noticed that I have blatantly skipped an entire chunk of history, and there is a glaringly obvious name that has not been concluded, and that is because I have saved the worst for last— Now, believe me, I am not saying that any of these European explorers weren't awful in their own right, but the Spanish seem to have been uniquely horrific during this period, and that trend started out along with the first of the explorers that Spain sent off to the New World in 1492. Christopher Columbus, Italian explorer born in Genoa, best known for being the first European contact with the Caribbean and Central America. He planned to seek a western route to the East Indies with the funding of Spain, hoping to find a shorter route for the spice trade. This obviously didn't work, but for years Columbus insisted that he had in fact made it to the Indies. If you're my age, you probably remember the little ditty we all learned in school. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I'm honestly not sure on the provenance of this particular rhyming couplet, but longer forms of the poem exist. The longer version that I can typically find online includes this frighteningly reductive understanding of the relationship between Columbus and the natives. The Arawak natives were very nice. They gave the sailors food and spice. Columbus sailed on to find some gold to bring back home, as he'd been told. He made the trip again and again, trading for gold to bring to Spain. The first American... No, not quite, but Columbus was brave and he was bright. We cheer for him and say hooray, especially on Columbus Day. Honestly, I'm not sure if I'm more offended by the fact that they tried to rhyme again and Spain in this book or with the horrific whitewashing of history. Now, it's definitely the whitewashing, obviously, but the rhyming is pretty bad. Now, I'm not saying that the gory details of the real story of Columbus that I'm about to share with all of you should be taught to kindergartners, but the least we could do is not teach them that it was some friendly get-together where everyone shared their toys and got along. Because it absolutely wasn't. It was an immensely horrifying genocide. When Columbus arrived in the Caribbean, his first landing place was an island in the Bahamas known to the natives as Guanahani. He would subsequently visit the islands now known as Cuba and Hispaniola, establishing a colony in what is now Haiti. After he arrived, he would send letters back to Spain about what he had found there. In those letters, he described the natives. These people are very simple as regards to the use of arms, as your highness will see from the seven that I caused to be taken to bring home and learn our language and return. With 50 men, they can all be subjugated and made to do what is required of them. And... They have no iron or steel or weapons, nor are they capable of using them, although they are well-built people of handsome stature because they are wondrously timid. 
Now, as I say to my students on the first day of the semester, it is incredibly important that we remember to look at historical context in the analysis of the actions of a historical figure. And it's absolutely true that many of the explorers and colonial governors of this period treated the natives horrifically. But even by his own contemporary standards, Columbus was an outlier in his blatant cruelty. 56 years after Columbus arrived in the New World, only 500 of the original 300,000 native inhabitants of the islands would still be alive. Between 1494 and 1496, during the midst of Columbus's governorship of the Indies, 100,000 of the natives would die, half of them to mass suicide, which they preferred to the cruelty and enslavement that they were put through by Columbus and the Spanish. Natives jumped from cliffs, poisoned themselves, even starved themselves because death was better than what awaited them if they had to live under Spanish rule. Columbus kidnapped native tribesmen and sent them to Europe as slaves. In one instance, Columbus ordered 1,500 men and women seized. 500 were sent to Spain as slaves, with about 200 of those dying on the voyage. Columbus also used the natives as slaves on their own land, generally doing hard labor and gold mining. This was brutally hard work, and anyone not pulling their weight could expect whippings or the loss of ears, limbs, or even their life. Something like 10,000 natives lost hands, dying from blood loss because they could not provide the required tithe of gold to Columbus and the Spanish monarchs. And it wasn't just Columbus who was horrifying in his treatment of the natives. His own men were happy enough to follow his example, especially when it came to horrifying acts of sexual assault against native women. During Columbus's second expedition to the Americas, one member of the expedition wrote, While I was in the boat, I captured a very beautiful woman, whom the Lord Admiral Columbus gave to me. When I had taken her to my cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with the desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling and so treated me with her nails so that I wished I had never begun. I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly, and she let forth such incredible screams that you would not have believed your ears. Eventually, we came to such terms, I assure you, that you would have thought she had been brought up in a school for whores. In the year 1500, Columbus wrote in a letter, There are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from 9 to 10 are now in demand, and for all ages, a good price must be paid. The level of absolute cruelty and inhumanity visited upon natives by Columbus and his men would make a season of Law & Order SVU seem like an after-school special, to be honest. And before you think that Columbus treated natives that way just because he didn't really see them as human, the natives weren't the only people that Columbus visited his particular brand of sadistic authoritarianism on. The Spanish under his control got plenty of it as well. He ordered at least a dozen Spaniards to be whipped in public, tied by the neck, and bound together by the feet for trading gold for food to avoid starvation. To quote Lawrence Bergman's book, Columbus, The Four Voyages, he ordered a cabin boy's hand nailed in public to the spot where he had pulled a trap from the river and caught a fish. Whippings for minor infractions occurred with alarming frequency. Columbus ordered one wrongdoer to receive a hundred lashes, which could be fatal, for stealing sheep, and another for lying about the incident. An unlucky fellow named Juan Moreno received a hundred lashes for failing to gather enough food for Columbus's pantry. In the end, Columbus would be removed from office as governor and returned to Spain in chains to be tried for his crimes. Columbus's little torture porn governorship was upended when an official for the Crown of Castile named Francisco de Bobadilla arrived in the Indies with the purpose of investigating accusations against Columbus for his mishandling of the colony. Accusations included accepting bribes, enslaving natives, underpaying their taxes, and mishandling the rebellion of Francisco Roldan and committing treason. Bobadilla's report stated that the governance of Columbus had been disastrous and that he had seriously abused his authority as governor. 
Notably, it wasn't really the violence toward the natives that angered Bobadilla. It was the fact that Columbus had overstepped his authority when it came to the Spanish under his control. For instance, he had hanged five Spaniards for committing atrocities without sending them to Spain for a trial. I shudder to think what Columbus might have considered to be atrocities. Overall, the issue that was taken with Columbus by the Spanish was likely caused by the fact that his actions negatively impacted the profitability of the colony. It becomes much harder to make a profit, after all, when all your slave labor has committed suicide or been brutally maimed and murdered by the governor. Regardless of the exact reason for his arrest, when the architects of the Spanish Inquisition decide that you're a little bit too cruel for their taste, you may have made some critical errors. Of course, despite his arrest, Columbus was never really held accountable for his actions. He was stripped of his titles, but set free once he reached Spain. And again, this period of atrocities might be slightly worse than those of other colonial governors, but Columbus alone was not responsible. The arrest of Columbus and his removal from power as governor did not end the atrocities against natives by any means. We know that because while Columbus was shipped back to Spain in 1500, Bartolomé de las Casas wrote about the atrocities of the Spanish in detail after his time in the New World from 1502 to 1515, writing that while there he saw cruelty on a scale no living being has ever seen or expects to see. And of course, Hernán Cortés and Francisco Pizarro would commit numerous atrocities during their time in the New World as well, destroying cultures and attempting wholesale genocide just as Columbus had done. But the main issue here that my students always struggle with is that Cortés and Pizarro don't have a national holiday named after them. So why, with all the historical evidence of his atrocities, has Columbus become an American icon? Not only did he not discover the New World, but he was objectively a horrifying human being even by the standards of his own day. So what the hell is up with Columbus Day? Luckily, I can answer that for you. Columbus Day has nothing to do with Christopher Columbus. Despite discovering America in 1492, Columbus goes pretty much unremarked upon for a couple of hundred years after that. It's not until the late 1700s that anyone remembers he existed much at all. Then, in the 1820s, Italian immigrants began flocking to the United States. Italian immigrants who were going to experience religious and ethnic discrimination here in America, which often led to brutal violence. One of the largest mass lynchings in the United States would occur in 1891 in New Orleans when 11 Sicilian immigrants were killed. The first official commemoration of Columbus's journey occurred in 1892, just one year after the New Orleans lynchings. It's not a coincidence that President Benjamin Harrison called for this national observance of Columbus Day then, on the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival. As an Italian explorer, many Italian-Americans saw celebrating the life and accomplishments of Christopher Columbus as a way for Italian-Americans to be accepted into the mainstream. It wasn't until 1934 that Columbus Day became a federal holiday during Franklin Roosevelt's administration— but that first celebration of Columbus Day wasn't really about Columbus at all. It was more of an attempt to encourage Americans to accept that Italian immigrants were Americans as well. Given what we know about Columbus now, it still makes a lot more sense to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day instead. But somehow it does help to know that Columbus Day was not intentionally meant to be a celebration of a 15th century psychopath. Once again, thank you for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history. Come back on Thursday when we'll be discussing what some of the early colonial systems in America looked like and how different European countries differed in how they approached colonization. And please remember that you can find links to join the podcast Discord, follow me on TikTok, and contribute to my tip jar coffee fund at the link tree in the podcast description. You can also become a supporter of the podcast through Spotify and pay a small monthly subscription to help me keep paying my bills if you really enjoy my content.